This is an ABC podcast. Australia's rapid shift to online activity during COVID lockdowns is prompting a huge surge in cybercrime and espionage. As Australia's dependence on the internet for work, information, access to... Abigail Bradshaw is the head of the Australian Cyber Security Centre. Its annual threat assessment reveals there were almost 70,000 reports of cybercrimes in the past financial year, or one every eight minutes. Cybercrime, cyber surveillance and hacking are today commonplace. Yet how many of us are aware of just how widespread the problem is and who we should fear? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision. Today we trace the history of cybercrimes from their rudimentary beginnings in the 1980s through to today. Cybercrimes can broadly be divided into two main areas. Computer-facilitated crime, that's traditional crimes that have moved online, and cyber-dependent or cyber-focused crimes. That's new types of crimes that have emerged with the internet. It certainly has evolved from the early days. I mean, we go all the way back to the 1980s when people were hacking mainframe computers, usually financial databases. You know, the loan hacker busying himself with trying to understand how the system works and how they could muck around with it. My name is Roderick Broadhurst. I'm the director of the Australian National University Cybercrime Observatory. My title is Emeritus Professor of Criminology. For want of a better word, I guess the thrill of cracking a computer system and then sort of kind of sharing your knowledge about how clever you were. So there was an element of the chase. That was really the case, I think, until the mid-1990s. The first person to be found guilty of cybercrime was Ian Murphy, also known as Captain Depp. My name is Claire Singer Lee. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Criminology and Justice Studies at the University of Massachusetts in the U.S. He had hacked into the American telephone company to manipulate its internal clock so that users and people can still make free calls at peak time. That happened in 1981. It wasn't until the mid-1990s as the internet expanded and the first search engines were created that cybercrime really began to take off. Some of our listeners will remember Windows Explorer, which was the first internet sort of browser that became available for general use and was associated with Microsoft computers. That really was a game changer because that meant you could hunt the internet looking for services or for information. The problem was that when Microsoft introduced the Internet Explorer back in 1995-1996, it, like a lot of other early tech activities, wasn't very highly conscious of the security implications. And in fact, The unintended consequences of things like Internet Explorer was that there were many, for want of a better word, bugs in the architecture of those systems which could be readily exploited, not just by cyber criminals, but I guess by state agents looking for information or trying to learn the kind of information that was being exchanged over the Internet. And it did take companies like Microsoft quite a while to realise that they'd actually put on the Internet road basically a car or vehicle that didn't really have any safety belts definitely didn't have any doors. So those kinds of programs opened up the entire e-commerce world, which did take off from the late 90s, opening up all sorts of avenues 
for cyber criminals. One of the earliest ones was uh, cloning a banking site, so creating exactly the same web page as a conventional bank so that when people visited that web page, they thought they were dealing with a proper bank and inadvertently releasing their details to the person operating that cloned website. Tens of thousands of the world's top hackers have converged on Las Vegas. What is the Cyber Grand Challenge? It is the world's first all-machine hacking tournament. These hackers are here to learn new ways to attack computer networks in order to protect them. With the sort of emergence of cybercrime using the internet, in, as you said, in a sort of opportunistic way, wasn't typically old-style criminals who suddenly moved their enterprise onto the internet, or did we start to see the emergence of really quite a different kind of criminal? Certainly by 2010, we could talk about the industrialisation of cybercrime, particularly the not just the so-called volume crimes, the scans, but also the hacking the capacity to break into computers. First of all, there was an evolution in the sophistication of the kinds of hacks and cracks that were being developed and the scaling up too of the kinds of tools that you might use to break into a computer. There was a lot of selling, for example, of tools that were designed to do that exactly, particular types of tools that you could buy online that would do that for you. There was a kind of an evolution of what we now would call crime as a service, criminal services. So perhaps you have a competitor who sells on a web page similar sort of products. You might want to take that competitor out. So you could flood that competitor with requests for services and shut down their computer. We call them distributed denial of service attacks. Over time, these kinds of skill sets got developed by, I guess, techno-criminals So what started to happen was traditional organised crime started to see the benefits of these kinds of services, particularly in terms of communications, and also saw them as potential outlets for some of their product. From 2000s onwards, threats diversified and multiplied by multiple different organisations. One of the great examples of that would be North Korean hackers that started as early as 2000, but it got more interesting in the last 10 years. North Korea was behind the WannaCry cyber attack this year. The ransomware attack hit more than 300,000 computers in 150 nations. After careful investigation, the United States is publicly attributing the massive WannaCry cyber attack to North Korea. Especially in 2017, WannaCry ransom, which we believe that was from North Korea, North Korean hackers. In fact, 230,000 computers in one day. So you can imagine how the impact was very big and how many monies were perhaps spent to secure their computer systems. North Korea has the lowest penetration of internet use on the planet. Yet North Korea produces some of the world's most talented hackers. Well, this is the perverse and amazing thing about this phenomenon, that North Korea does have this extraordinary talent for producing hackers. My name is Ed Caesar, and I'm a journalist, and I'm a writer for The New Yorker magazine. And the way that they do it is the way that I'd guess that old Soviet countries used to groom gymnasts for the Olympics. They take very promising students in 
maths and STEM subjects, and they put them in specialist high schools. And they are groomed for positions within sections of the army or sections of the intelligence gathering community where they can be taught how to use and hack computers. People are spotted from their early teens and perhaps even before. I spoke to one young man who had actually defected from North Korea, who was part of that pipeline of talent. And that talent is directed in really interesting ways. You know, a lot of the hackers come through things like the International Math Olympiad. So North Korea has a very good success rate in these kind of international math competitions, which are high school age kids going up against uh, high school age kids from other countries. And this is all part of the talent spotting program in North Korea. And eventually you get funneled into the area of government or the military, or the intelligence gathering apparatus that is going to be best suited to your skills and talent. So when and why did North Korea begin training and commercializing hacking? This was something that had been in the minds of the leadership since the first Gulf War. But I think certainly for the last 15, 20 years, North Korea has been developing this capability on commercial lines. You know, sanctions have been imposed on them for a long time. And, and this is a way in which they make money. What they need more than anything is cash. So the North Korean missile program, the North Korean defense program is funded, according to the UN, in large part by cybercrime. You know, there is a significant amount of that defense budget, which is produced by cryptocurrency hacks, ATM cash outs, all of these cyber criminal enterprises, the money is coming back to Pyongyang and is being put into missile programs. It's an astonishing way to raise money for a weapons program, but this seems to be true. And do we have any sense of just how much money the kinds of hacking they do actually brings back to North Korea? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's billions. So the UN thinks, the UN thought in 2019 that North Korea had made $2 billion through cybercrime. And that projection was based on about four or five years worth of study. In the last two years, it's accelerated. And that's partly because North Koreans have got a lot better at cryptocurrency theft, which is the stealing of digital coins from cryptocurrency exchanges. They are making a huge amount of money through this. You know, there's an estimate that about 10% of the North Korean defense budget could be funded by cryptocurrency hacks alone. And I'm imagining that most of these attacks are directed very firmly at the West and not somewhere like China. That appears to be the case. Yeah. You know, the Americans certainly point the finger of blame at China and Russia for sort of harboring North Korean cells. And it is notable that there don't seem to be attacks on targets in China and in Russia, historical allies of North Korea. You know, John Demers, who made a big announcement about the North Koreans and cybercrime, pointed the finger firmly at the Chinese saying they're supporting these hackers because they don't want North Korea to fail. It's a big charge, but certainly there seems to be a kind of do no harm against the other party attitude, certainly, between North Korea and China. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. And in this program, we're tracing the history of cybercrime from its crude beginnings in the 1980s through to today's global reach. 
North Korea is not the only nation where hackers have been allowed to flourish. As the internet expanded through the 1990s and into the 2000s, Russia and many of the former Soviet states also saw an expansion of cybercrime. Well, for most of the last week, a fuel pipeline running between Texas and New York was shut down by hackers. The perpetrators are a cyber criminal group called Darkside, thought to be based in Russia. They stole data from Colonial's computer systems and threatened to leak it unless a ransom was paid. So ransomware is pretty straightforward as far as hacking attacks go. My name is Joshua Yaffa. I'm the Moscow correspondent of The New Yorker. It starts as penetration of a target network, usually a large corporation that's thought to have sizable cash on hand to pay off the ransom. First, the hacking group gains access to the systems through a variety of hacking tools. It could be a kind of brute force attack to force their way into the system. It could be through a phishing email. And once they're in, they install software that locks or freezes up the network systems of the target. Someone shows up to work, turns on their computer, doesn't start or it starts and gets a lock screen that says, you know, you've now been victim of a ransomware attack, you're locked out of your servers. And that repeats all over the whole network, everyone from the CEO to the person in the warehouse. And then that's where the ransom comes in. The systems can be unlocked for a price, the hackers say. And thus begins usually a process of negotiation by which the target institution either refuses to pay, agrees to pay right away, tries to negotiate a lower price. There's a whole industry of ransomware negotiators, kind of like hostage negotiators who can come in, oftentimes provided by insurance companies, because that's a whole other industry that's cropped up, ransomware insurance. But frankly, it usually ends with the hackers getting some amount of money and and not a small amount of money because, frankly, for most large institutions, especially large global multinational corporations, when they sit and do the math in the C-suite and calculate how much they're losing every hour or every day, it's frankly cheaper to pay off the hackers than to keep being locked out of their systems and see their operations uh, frozen. That certainly seems to be the case in the Colonial Pipeline story when the company did, after some days, pay off a ransom to Darkside, the hacking group that carried out the attack. And that's essentially the scheme, and it's repeatable all over the world, all manner of institutions. It's a really exportable and expandable scheme that frankly brings in a lot of profit, which is why we've seen it used so widely in recent years. The world's biggest meat processor is set to resume production tomorrow after a cyber attack shut down global operations. The cyber attack affected 100,000 workers in the US and 11,000 across Australia's 47 sites. It's the third major attack linked to Russia this year. First it was oil, now it's agriculture. What's next? There seems to be, or the accusation is, that a lot of the attacks actually are being initiated or come from Russian-speaking countries, either sort of Russia itself or former Soviet states. Do you think that's right? And if so, why do you think that is? And how is it connected with the collapse of the old Soviet Union? The reason why these groups have ended up being concentrated in Russia and Russian-speaking territories does indeed go back to the collapse of the Soviet Union when a lot of engineering and technical talent was unleashed without a uh, real institutional and certainly not economic or financial 
infrastructure to sustain it. And what you had is people with great degree of technical expertise devoid of the kind of normal financial economic business ecosystem in which those talents could be met with kinds of financial reward you see elsewhere. And you have a a generation of computer specialists who came up in that environment. And you've also seen a very different attitude from the authorities. And here's where the question of political will comes in, in Russia, especially to computer hacking and, and to computer hackers as individuals. The Russian authorities have a very kind of double-edged attitude toward hacking groups that operate in Russian territory. Those groups that do attack Russian targets, banks, airlines, other institutions, the Russian government itself, the Russian government does have a track record of mounting operations, even in coordination, it should be said, with Western law enforcement against those kinds of groups. But if the groups target their attacks outward, say against American or Western targets, there isn't a lot of precedent for Russian law enforcement and security services going after such groups. In fact, if anything, we see them at times try and recruit from those groups. There seems to be somewhat of a pipeline from the Russian criminal underground hacking world to hackers who at least moonlight, if not more directly work for the Russian security services. I think especially when we get to intelligence or security services like the FSB, Russia's main internal or domestic security service, they tend to see Russian hackers as a resource as much as a threat. And there is record, as I said, of hackers who've ended up afoul of the law in Russia, ended up being recruited for operations that have a geopolitical context to them. So we don't necessarily see Russian criminal hacking groups being pursued the way they might be in other countries. They're given a kind of winking freedom to operate. I don't think it's quite to the level of coordination or direction, but I think that they're allowed to exist because when the state uh, needs them to be a useful kind of resource or instrument for its own geopolitical purposes, it's a ready-made wellspring of talent from which to draw from. And do you think, say, over the last 20 or 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that there has been a sort of more professionalization in a lot of these cyber criminals? Is it still sort of rogue individuals or is it more sort of business-like and coordinated now? A group like DarkSide, who were behind the Colonial Pipeline hack, are a perfect example of the real professionalization of hacking. They didn't pioneer, but they were certainly through the attack on Colonial Pipeline, I think, one of the most kind of high-profile practitioners of what's been called ransomware as service. And I think that is an important distinction or kind of evolution in the development of criminal hacking in Russia. And this ransomware as service essentially means that DarkSide itself isn't necessarily doing the hacking. It comes up with the ransomware product, as it were, the code that is installed on the computer networks of target corporations, institutions. But then it's essentially freelance hackers, not all the way different to the way you might have an affiliate program in the sharing economy In a way, Uber drivers who work for Uber, who are kind of contractors that use the Uber software and the Uber system, but aren't necessarily Uber employees, that's kind of the way it works with these ransomware as service operations. Freelance affiliates, people who are vetted and recruited by DarkSide, they're the ones who actually go out and target places like Colonial Pipeline, install the hacking software. And once they've done so, then they turn things back to the head office, I guess you could say, to DarkSide, who has a whole suite of employees who specialize in everything from negotiations with the target to PR. There's a whole other element of ransomware of service that not only does the hacking outfit 
threaten to keep the target company's systems locked up in perpetuity as, as long as they don't pay, but also threatens to leak or publish information it has stolen during the hack. So there's kind of a a dual-edged threat to the hack, not just to be frozen out of your systems, but to also see proprietary data leaked, perhaps shared with rogue traders who might try and short your stock, for example. So there's a whole suite of people at DarkSide who might not even have much technical or hacking expertise, but who perhaps are proficient in languages and are the ones who are in charge of negotiations, whether with the target company or its insurance company. So there's a great deal of specialization and professionalization in hacking outfits like DarkSide that definitely speak to the evolution of these operations. And do we have any idea or is there any sort of calculation about what what sort of these cyber crimes might be worth in Russia? Like what? how much money do they bring in? I think it's fair to say that a hacking operation like DarkSide can bring in tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I mean, we can track to a certain degree through Bitcoin wallets, which are transparent in the sense of we don't necessarily know or we, we don't know the actual kind of real identities of the owners of these wallets, but we can, through the blockchain, monitor the cash flows and we can see the transactions that are flowing to wallets controlled to groups like DarkSide. And we can see the sums are in the millions of dollars or even higher. And we could see before DarkSide kind of went quiet or went dark after the Colonial Pipeline hack, which I think brought too much undue attention to DarkSide, we could see that it had received tens of millions of dollars. But we would be wrong to think that it was just North Korea and Russia where hacking and cyber attacks originated. It's part of the murky, fast-moving frontier of cyber attacks. Every hack attack, computer virus, system outage or takeover raises the same questions. Is this a rival probing for weaknesses or trialling a new attack? Is it state-sponsored or terrorists or teenage hackers or a government hiding behind a criminal group? What is clear is that the world's big military players are all doing it all the time. Some of these tools, some of these bugs, some of these crime waves have been weaponized or militarized and how that's changing quite significantly the national security landscape around concerns about hacking, espionage, and even now the, the grave possibility of what we would call kinetic attacks on critical infrastructure systems and so on. We can sort of kind of date that around about 2010, 2011. The first destructive cyber weapon was deployed by the United States five years ago. The computer virus called Stuxnet was planted in Iran's uranium enrichment program, shutting down the system. But there were unintended consequences. Stuxnet escaped, infecting other systems, and its success spurred today's frantic digital arms race. With the well-known case of Stuxnet, which was a very complicated piece of crimeware or malware that was able to be inserted into the Iranian nuclear facility at Nantes. And it had the effect of interfering with the operation of the centrifuges that run in that facility producing enriched uranium. And that did actually cause that facility centrifuges to collapse. It delayed the enrichment program and caused all kinds of havoc inside that system. And the Stuxnet worm, as it was called, quite a complicated piece of malware 
It was designed according to its creator, the Israeli company NSO Group, to track the movements of terrorists and criminals. But instead, the spyware, known as Pegasus, was licensed to governments who allegedly used it to hack phones belonging to human rights activists, journalists and business executives around the world. Those targeted by the spyware can have their location, photos, messages and phone calls monitored without their approval or knowledge. A lot of people think the bad actors are the hackers who are after stealing something from us. They would never think that the good guys too can hack us. My name is Manal Sharif. I'm a cybersecurity specialist. I'm also a women's rights activist. Pegasus is just a tool that an Israeli company called NSO Group uses. That tool used to be in the past, let's say your iPhone or your smart device broke, you don't have to go physically to the repair shop to fix it. They can do it remotely. And then they found there is a market for accessing our phones remotely. And this market is authoritarian regime who want to access the phones of what they would call threats, national threats. And now threat is a very loose term. It could be a journalist, a whistleblower, an activist, or a terrorist. So they use the same tool, which is Pegasus, to find something called zero-day vulnerability. The zero-day vulnerabilities or the zero-click vulnerabilities are vulnerabilities that the maker themselves don't know they exist. And this is what Pegasus utilize. They target iPhone. Most journalists today and most activists I know today use iPhone devices. They target that. They find these zero-day vulnerability or zero-click vulnerabilities. They create programs to hack it, to exploit it, and now they take control. In the past, when we talk to employees in the company I work for, we tell them, be careful, don't click on links from emails. They don't know. Today, you don't even need to click on a link. The last one, it was this week. It was patched by Apple. It's an image. They infect you by just sending you an image. You don't even need to click on it. And they infect your MacBook, your iPhone, your Apple Watch. This is the most dangerous and the most difficult to detect. You could be hacked for months. One of the journalists was hacked for three years until he changed his phone. And it's been sold to governments in Mexico, Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Saudi Arabia. All these governments have been using it. And they found lists of heads of states, high-profile journalists, a lot of activists. And are many of these kinds of programs that are being used by nation states in this way, are a lot of them actually produced in the West? Unfortunately, most of the intelligence is produced in the West. Israelis are known to be the best when it comes to intelligence. And uh, they sell this intelligence. They claim that they do a lot of due diligence before they make it available to problematic, oppressive regimes. But once that technology is out and it's in the hands of repressive regimes and they have no code, uh, no human rights code that puts that limit on how you use it and who do you target, it goes out of control. So most of the Western countries like BAE, BAE Systems is a British company and it's an intelligent British company. And they're known to sell intelligent tick of mass surveillance to governments like the government of my country, Saudi Arabia. Those tools are so powerful that you can't just feed it with the voice print of someone you want to monitor. And it doesn't matter what line they use to make a phone call. And they can still detect that voice and record that call. 
So this is how massive is the tick today. All my life, I've been protecting people's data from hackers. And there's this blind spot that this whole time, our governments, the tech companies that we've been trusting with our information and data are the ones abusing and using this data to alter people's behavior and alter pe- and program people and manipulate people. So it's not the hackers that we need to fear anymore. It's actually those big tech and those governments with access to all our history, even the data that we didn't share with them, our behavioral data. Manal Sharif, cybersecurity specialist and women's rights activist. My other guests, Roderick Broadhurst, director of the Australian National University Cybercrime Observatory. Claire Lee, assistant professor in the School of Criminology and Justice Studies at the University of Massachusetts. Ed Caesar, journalist and writer with The New Yorker magazine. And Joshua Yatha, Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN.